Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. Lauren will be joining us in just a moment. Um, Before she joins us, I thought that I would go ahead and give y'all a little bit of a history lesson. So this week we are doing Japanese film. Uh, We are doing two different films. The first one that we are doing is Sword of Doom from 1966. The second one that we are doing is Tampopo from 1985. Um, Sword of Doom is part of the samurai films of that era. Um, Samurai films actually were a a long tradition in in Japanese film. Um, And then Tampopo is is part of the ramen western movement that that came about later on. Um, So for a little bit of background, um, Japanese film began all the way back in the 1800s. Uh, Film was introduced to Japan uh, around 1896 or so, Um, but it was still very much less popular than uh, theater, in particular kabuki theater, which was very melodramatic, very overwrought, and um, it was... A tradition that, that sort of came within itself, you know. Um, Japan, even though it had a lot of interaction with other people throughout its history, because of its island nature, um, you know, really came into its own cultural t- traditions in, in many ways. Um, and kabuki theater is is a part of that. And, and that influenced their early films, much like how, you know vaudeville-influenced early film, um, with a lot of stage performers finding success on on film. And um, the early part of, of Japanese film tradition also included, even though the films were silent, a live narrator in the theater. You know, American films had live bands, you know, and live orchestras doing all of the music, whereas um, Japanese films had a, have, had a live narrator in, in the theater, uh, known as a benshi, if I'm not mistaken. And um, they would provide dialogue back and forth for the characters, and any kind of narrative nuance that needed to be provided came from this person. And so, um, it ended up becoming its own very interesting tradition in film, and a lot of people that were narrators for these films live ended up becoming actors as films moved into sound. Um, once sound did take off, directors found it particularly liberating. Um, And a lot of the early films that were done were early adaptations of kabuki theater. Um, In the 20s, there was an earthquake um, 
and it ended up demolishing um, Tokyo and Yokohama. Um, and so what ended up happening is Kyoto became the place of these historical films known as Jedi Geki. And then you also had, um, over in Tokyo, uh, the Gendai Geki, which is where sort of contemporary stories were told. And, um, you know, from this place, they, they went and told different kinds of stories. You know, the, the historical films had their own little subgenres, and the contemporary films had their own subgenres, including, like, like family comedies and that kind of thing. And uh, the Japanese film industry continued on pretty pretty prolific, prolifically uh, after that. And leading into World War II, what ended up happening was eventually... Um, sort of a sense of, of nationalism started to to settle into the nation in the 30s. And so by the time that you started to get to the, the late 30s, the government censorship board that was in place started to creep further and further in um, until they were finally putting in a sort of um, Nazi format um different kind of um, propaganda in every level of filmmaking. And then in the aftermath of that, kind of like in the uh, early part of the, of the 20th century, where America and Germany were exchanging films, America and Japan started exchanging films because America was occupying Japan at the time. And America also had a very strong say in what Japanese films were and weren't released. Uh, they ended up confiscating like 200-some-odd films. They destroyed some of them um, because they were deemed to be um, supportive of militarism or feudalism or various other elements that were decided to be against this idea that Japan was forevermore against uh, ever disturbing the peace of the world. And so, then following sort of World War II and, and the occupation, you ended up having Kurosawa and Rashomon. And Rashomon kind of put... Japan back onto the international cinema landscape. It's a story about the reliability of narrators and the story told itself. And from that, you had this kind of return to people using all the different forms of storytelling. Um, you know, Jedi Geki and, and Gendai Geki, and you move then on into... Um, 
you know, Godzilla in the 50s. And, and part of the reason that people got so good with miniature work for Godzilla was the fact that they did not have footage of World War II. So when they wanted to recreate things for World War II for news stuff, they used miniatures. And so a lot of those craftsmen brought those skills over into um, Godzilla and, and some of those films. And like after after uh, the government was broken up in the wake of World War II, uh, the studios had been consolidated underneath that government, underneath two different studio banners. It was broken up again. And, um, and Kurosawa kind of paved this new way for... A Japanese renaissance in international cinema, and it was after that, for the next decade, that that Japanese cinema really started to travel around. And it was in the wake of especially samurai films that two things happen. One is Star Wars, the other is spaghetti westerns. So, Star Wars is kind of a retelling of one, the monomyth itself, which is this whole notion of a singular story, but it's also a, a kind of operatic story in the same vein as, as Japanese samurai films. On top of that, a lot of samurai films really had a slow boil about these characters who were outside of the law, but were the law traveling around inflicting their their will if you will uh through the sword and it kind of had this effect where instead of your western hero being john wayne it became clint eastwood and it became this man in a poncho with a gun and this slow burn up to him pulling out his gun and shooting and the spaghetti western genre, you know, was very heavily influenced essentially by the samurai film. That's why in 1960, Peckinpah goes and does The Magnificent Seven, which is a remake of The Seven Samurai. And so then, after a decade of, uh, or more of the spaghetti western... Eventually, this kind of back and forth between Japan and America continues, and what ends up happening is you get the ramen western. Uh, there are multiple culturally specific western uh, styles that are food-related, kind of like the spaghetti western. So you have the spaghetti western, the ramen western, and the curry western, for example. And one of those films includes... Um, or, or this whole discussion, rather, uh, includes two films. And one of them is Sword of Doom, which comes from 1966. It's a very special film to me. Um, it was the film that was a... Or a, it, the like last 15 minutes of it is the, the sort of inspiration for a story that I wrote called Doom in a Darker Sky, which is a sci-fi story. Um, and then the other one is Tampopo, which was gotten for me by my sister, and it's an incredible film. Um, and, you know, it's kind of this 
post-war tradition of film with this second generation of filmmaker um, and then this third generation of filmmaker where, you know, the samurai film, the Jedi Geki ends up informing the Western, ends up informing the ramen Western. And so it ended up being a really interesting double episode. And, uh, we're very thankful for you, the listeners, for, for joining us. We're recording on, on Thanksgiving and the day before Thanksgiving. And, uh, we hope that, that you guys enjoy the episode and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, as always, we have a clip, so take a listen. So that was sort of doom, but more importantly, we are rejoined by my best friend and favorite person in the world, my co-host, Lauren. Hi. Hello, dear. Hi. Uh, so what was your sort of, before we get into sort of doom a little bit, what was your experience with, um, Japanese cinema sort of at large before this movie? Um, honestly, like, my... I guess my experience with with Japanese cinema really consisted of anime and okay. um honestly I guess the beginnings started with, you know, the classic Samurai Jack. <laughs> I don't even is that is that Japanese? I don't even know, man. It's it's a western cartoon but it largely draws on especially like the samurai film tradition. You know, with like the ultra wide mm-hmm. kind of framing, and I always, I always loved, I guess, how like artistic it felt. You know, really, um, really like pointed in, um, you know, they they let moments moments really land and really settle in that, and I found that really um, similar also to to what we've we've been watching of of Japanese cinema. Um mm-hmm. but I guess then then my actual first one if that one's not not real, sorry, sorry folks. Um would probably be like Miyazaki. Ah, see, no, I have to go. I have to go. You know, my personal timeline of Japanese history is is all all sorts of wonky, so it's going to probably be like Dragon Ball Z. Okay. Um which is a, a different type of Japanese um I guess expression entirely, you know, that one's very mm-hmm. like action hero, whereas like yeah. um even like Miyazaki is is more kind of, I guess, in line with, with what Samurai Jack what is for me. You know, it's very it's very beautiful and masterful in what it's trying to tell me and it doesn't always have to use words to express that feeling. Mm-hmm. Um 
but yeah, no, I didn't really have like a lot of, especially like um, live action history to to really pull on before we did this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like you get you can tell they're from the same country. Yeah, <laughs> it definitely um, it still it still had those 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 things that I guess I was expecting from my outside perspective within them um and and so much more mm-hmm. you know I'm 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 curious to to go further down the line I've always really enjoyed Japanese cinema um and this just kind of like cemented that for me in a way you know um I don't know <laughs> No, that's that's a perfectly good answer. Um, honestly, when I was, you know, doing a little bit of the reading leading up to this episode, one of my main thoughts was, like, I really want to expose myself to so much more of these films, mm-hmm. you know, because just some of the descriptions of the films that I read about in the, in the book, um, David Cook's textbook, my go-to, um really made me desirous to to dig deeper and like i've honestly wanted to dig deeper i think into pretty much every cinematic tradition no offense to the uk probably that we've touched you know like i've wanted to go deeper into bollywood after mother india um i've wanted to figure out like where the hell egyptian cinema went after the land you know mm-hmm. um and 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 going back and and hitting sort of doom, which means a lot to me, and um, and Tampopo, which ends up meaning a lot to me. Um, <laughs> like I like I haven't stopped thinking about Tampopo in the same way that I I couldn't help but think about the last fifteen minutes of sort of doom. But we'll get into that. Um, mm-hmm. And so. Um, yeah, uh, I, I already sort of left us off on a, on a note leading into sort of doom. And so for an official synopsis, uh, through his unconscionable actions against others, a sociopath samurai builds a trail of vendettas that follow him closely, uh, directed by... Kehachi Okamoto, written by Shinobu Hashimoto, starring Tatsuya Nakadai, Mishio Aratama, Yuzo Kayama, uh, Yoko Naito, and and uh, several others. Um, The, the 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 main person is of course uh, Tatsuya Nakadai as Ryonosuke uh, Suke I think is how you pronounce that one and uh, this one got introduced to me in do you mind if I lead it away go for it okay this one got introduced to me in um, in college in David Cook's class you know we did cinema sort of essentially from when it was introduced until world war ii and then from like world war ii after and um 
my teacher just kind of threw us in the into the deep end on this one. You know, we had been talking about Japanese film, uh, and and film in the wake of of World War Two in general, and you know, he was explaining to us, you know, the Jedi Geki and the Gendai Geki and 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 Godzilla and all of that, and he started talking about samurai films and. He gave us all of the plot, which, by the way, the through his unconscionable actions against others, blah, 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 all of that, really underselling um, the lead-up of this plot. Like, this is a dense two hours, one minute of a movie. Um, but that's also because, essentially, this comes from, like, 41 volumes of storytelling that ended up being, like, several plays and then a few films before this. But what I liked about this um, that we don't do in the West with stuff that has been in several volumes and is a part of history and, like, you know, pop culture stuff, we will still kill the Waynes in Batman. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring up the Waynes, man. Like, I knew. Like, who watches Batman and goes, huh? I, I wonder, wonder how. <laughs> it's kind of like Superman. It's like, oh, I wonder, did Krypton die? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, and so like, it's something that I, you know, not to get too far into the weeds of like how I feel about this movie. Like, it was a definitely a dense two hours, but like, and like that definitely understates it for sure. But also like, it wasn't treating me like I was stupid while I was watching it either. No, yeah, um, they they really came to it with this understanding that, like, you got it. Or mm-hmm. if you didn't, you would figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, it's, it's a, on a certain level, you kind of have to, like, let certain plots go that part of you wants to desperately hold on to. You know, there's this whole plot about the Shogunate and whether or not it's the Empire or the Shogunate and and these, you know, criminal figures are of one political opinion. Don't you fucking think about it for a second. Because the more you think about it, the less sense any of it'll make. <laughs> <laughs> but that's because... On a certain level, we're so removed from the book and also in a, you know, an admittedly, you know, Western audience perspective, I have no real deep cultural context. I kind of understand the idea of how this is just before the end of Samurai, really. You know, they were outlawed after a certain point in the late 1860s, but, like, they still continued on. Mm-hmm. Um not unlike Civil War militias, kind of like what, um, sorry, this is a tangent, in Hateful Eight, the, the Maddox Marauders. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of post-Civil War group of we're still fighting the fight fighters. You know, after the samurai were done, there were still a group of them that continued on, and actually they ended up just essentially infiltrating the military-industrial complex of the of the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, that's a whole can of worms. But this story, you know, it's it's right in the middle of that culture, right at the end of it, and, like, they don't care if you understand it. Like, the way that the story is presented, what I'm saying is, don't get in the weeds on any of this history, because you'll have to do the kind of research I did 
to understand it. Really, what you have to do is just essentially follow, um, for a kind of a rough estimate, um, Samurai Jack Nicholson in The Shining go mad. You know, it's that same kind of descent into chaos where the first time you meet them, you go, this person's weird. And then you watch it get worse. Yeah, and, like, from the beginning of this movie, not one point was I like, huh, I wonder if this guy is gonna turn out to be crazy. Because, like, he was crazy from the beginning of this movie. You could see it in his eyes. And they do such a great job at, like, really painting him as, like, this really conflicted in- individual from from the start. It's not one of these things where where, <laughs> where the actor gets, like, half of the script and, like, that's it for a really long time. And then they're like, oh, so that's where my character goes after they finally, like, finished the story. You know, he, he knew from the beginning that he, he was crazy. Yeah. And, um... So, like, this whole movie is... And I didn't realize this because, true story, this was the first time I watched it through in full. The movie means a lot to me, but this is the first time that I had ever actually seen it start to finish. That's how was you, you know. and I together. That's how you know that you're, you're in for a treat is like you watched 15 minutes of this movie and you were like, I can't stop thinking about it, man. And like you didn't even have all of the rest of the context. No, I had <laughs> I had the last 15 minutes and I was like Art. enraptured with that. <laughs> Just by my teacher telling me all of the lead-up, you know, he was essentially, like, his lead-up was, spoiler alert, but whatever, it's from 66. Um, my teacher was like, it's about this ronin, which is a samurai without a master, and that's, that's particular in the cultural context, right? A samurai is a part of some sort of feudal institution, a ronin has no master. And so he is not a samurai. He is technically a ronin. So so he's like the the cop without a creed? Yes. Cool. Or and this goes, sorry, this this circles into my argument that the the cowboy became the cop became the superhero. What's the touchstone for Wolverine? So what I'm hearing is that <laughs> everything is connected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because and and what is what is the old man in the in the pin needle bed in the Wolverine, the second Wolverine movie, say, you are uh, a samurai. He, he tells him that he is a ronin, a samurai without a master. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's this guy, and this is all that my teacher gave me. This ronin is running around. He kills someone. He likes violence. And he ends up killing a lot of people and making a lot of enemies. And then finally his enemies come to kill him. And that was essentially all the lead-up that he gave us for the last 15 minutes of that movie. 
And really, like, again, with the synopsis and with that, technically, yes, that, that is the movie. But there's there's so much more going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. And, and I th- again, just an understatement. <laughs> yeah, and so, like, first off, it's a beautiful film. It's technically fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible camera movements incredible angles the actors are doing a phenomenal job even though some of the the story nuance might be lost it's never lost on me in an actor level you know what i mean the actors because they are definitely aware of who these people are are giving me everything i need Maybe not everything I need, but enough for me to carry the emotional arc. No, and I feel like that's something that I've learned from, like, doing this um, international cinema just as a whole. Is kind of like, at the end of the day, I'm not going to understand all of the nuance. But, like, that's that's not what I'm looking for. If you can sell me the story at it, it, it just a base level, then that's that's great. Because, honestly, like, this movie was you know really sold by all of the all of what made this movie happen like put together you know and and even if i didn't get all of the the historical context um i really didn't need it in order to in order to understand who these people were and 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 how they felt about the lives that they were living and the people that they were interacting with and the choices that those people were making mm-hmm. you know i really didn't need you know the the whole what is what is his creed how to understand how he's lived sense. his life yeah i I got it by by knowing that the actors knew it and, and trusting them to tell me this story the best way they, they knew how. And I think that they succeeded. No, for sure. Um, and, like, I, I saw this film in, in 2016, and so I sat on it for four years just errantly thinking about that last 15 minutes, the only thing that I had ever seen of this movie. And, like, I can honestly say, if I could give the film, like, one really positive note, even if I have, like, you know, like, notes about how it can sometimes be a little slow or whatever, if I can say this, after four years of only thinking about the last 15 minutes, I'm not disappointed by the rest of the movie. Good, honestly, I was I was going to ask, you know, after <laughs> this being here first, watch through, you know, did it live up to it? <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, um, I was really along for the journey, and so once I finally got to the part of the movie I knew, I was already hooked, and, and getting to the part that I knew that I knew was great was honestly on a certain level just like a a separate kind of reward Mm. of being like, even if I did think that there were some pacing issues, I thought the story was great and the lead up to it on its own way made the last 15 minutes better because I was more on our lead character's journey. Mm -hmm. Whereas, if I'm being completely frank... My understanding of the film, based off the description I got in the last 15 minutes, colored my lead character 
in the story that I wrote, Doom in a Darker Sky, to be more of a bastard than I think he's presented as, even though he is just as much of a scumbag as I wrote, I think this actor brought a lot of nuance that maybe I didn't have for the character. I really wrote a a bad guy, I think, on a certain level. No, yeah, this guy is is the is a psychopath in like every sense of the word. Like he is he is so charming when he wants to be and he's mysterious and for some reason people keep getting just like drawn into his into his presence and and for like no real real reason whatsoever. He kinda okay, he kinda reminds me of like a Sasuke. Mm-hmm. of a person it's that and i think it's in the essay it's that paradoxical nature of absolute evil of it being the worst thing for you to approach but the most intoxicating thing but maybe that's also going back to like venus fly traps or or po- poisonous toads mm-hmm. you know these things that draw the eye candy colored no, yeah, um, and there's also like this weird theme of this movie of 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 no one taking blame for anything, mm-hmm. and I find that really interesting as well because it's kind of like it's not just him; he's not just the problem. Yes, he is he is an outlier in the in the grand scheme of the world, but he's also close enough to it that nobody realizes until it's too late that he's he's a problem. And I think that that's really interesting as well. Yeah, and you know, the, the the person that really kind of essentially insists for the first time you find out in, in flashback, the first person that really insists that he is a problem in need of scourging is his father. No, yeah, and he's, like, saying it on his deathbed is the thing. So, again, everybody's waiting until the last possible second to kind of, like, come to terms with the fact, you know? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting, because also, like, the, the woman that he ends up having a child with, you know, constantly points it back at him, you know? Even though she was an active participant in a lot of the things that led her to this point in her life. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Um... It's an interesting one, and um, it's not an easy film. It's not necessarily for everyone. It ends very abruptly, but that's also because it, it was supposed to have sequels that it never got. But again, that's that's a, because it was a part of a 41-volume novel that mm-hmm. also was left incomplete because the, the novelist died. And like... I do, I do think that this movie is a little slow, but also, like, it's from 66, you know? And I think that at the end of the day, like, I think that this movie is is made with, with, with purpose in mind. And so I don't mind all of those slow moments because they're, they're there on purpose. Yeah. And, and I feel like, um, you know... If I feel like it's dragging, then it was supposed to feel like this so that that way when we finally do get to the climax, it does feel, you know, completely as epic as it can be. Because also, like, his life does have, it did have, you know, like, slower points in it, Mm -hmm. in between his his acts of violence and and his um, epic showdowns with with people who who would come 
and and try and, and tear him down. But then but then he would go for for scenes with not really doing anything. Mm. And um no, I, I really I also I guess, you know, unpopular opinion. I kind of like the fact that the movie just stops. Because <laughs> yeah. that's kind of how it feels. You see him, like, paused in this, like, epic fra- freeze frame, and it's like, will he die? Find out next time. And and you never get that. And it's also kind of, you know, kind of how life is in a certain way. You know, you don't you don't get to know when, when your final day comes, and we don't get to see his either. No, for sure. Um... So if you had to, if you had to rate Sword of Doom, what would you give Sword of Doom out of five? Oh, um, I think I'm going to give this movie, um, I think I'm going to give this movie a four and a half. Okay. I, I did, I really enjoy this movie and I, I think that it is worth another watch through. I think that because of how dense this movie is. Um, it can feel a little, like, eye-tiring, you know, having to, having to read subtitles for, for two hours was, was definitely a, a lot of subtitles in this movie, um, but overall I thought that the, that the way that this movie was made and, like, the acting, everybody was just doing such a great job, and I loved all of the, the cinematics of the, that final fight with, like, the, the ghosts and him, like, slicing up the, 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 the blinds. Mm-hmm. It was just, it's so, it's so cool, and it's also just a marvel of its time, um, because of, because of technological advances as well you know we we forget it's so easy to do things now we forget how how much work all of this took yeah and like no i i i really did i really enjoyed this movie okay um i'll i'll give it a i'll give it a four and a half as well i was gonna give it a four but but i'll give it a four and a half oh well um i'm glad <laughs> no, you, you convince me. Um, I don't know. There were, there were, uh, like, I loved it. Um, I guess I was maybe just like slightly more critical, but but I I I think that you made a, a compelling argument for for four and a half. Well, yay! I'm I'm glad that I'm glad that I could could bump you up to a four and a half. Not even on purpose. I wasn't even meaning to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So our next film, uh, you know, as I talked about, you know, the samurai film led to to the spaghetti western, led to eventually the ramen western, and so our next film is a very very special film from 1985 called Tampopo. And as always, we have a clip, so take a listen. <laughs> So that was Tampopo from 1985. And, uh, the premise is a truck driver stops at a small family run noodle shop and decides to help its fledgling business. The story is interwined 
intertwined with various vignettes about the relationship of love and food. I think that's appropriate. And it is directed by uh, Juzo Itami and written by Juzo Itami. And it stars uh, Sutomu Yamazaki, Nobuko Miyamoto, Koji Yakusho, and a very young Ken Watanabe, who once infamously yeah. said, let them fight in Godzilla. Um, <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. In the sequel. <laughs> and his son was the bad guy in the threequel crossover. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was that was Tampopo. And we, we this film ended up getting selected because Mad suggested it. And then she was gracious enough to just go out and buy it uh for, for me and and so then i was like well it has to be included now uh and intentionally i forced you to do it <laughs> <laughs> and uh and we watched it all together and um i'll say this i i had a, a, a hell of a time watching it uh but I, i'll let madeline sort of start off with it so how did you discover the the film um <laughs> point of extreme boredom with literally everything and I got into my head that like a fun thing to do since we couldn't really go out anywhere um, at the time like everything in Austin was shut down was I was like we should do sort of like um like a themes like dinner and a movie at home so um for me obviously like I used to I used to be a chef like I love food I thought a fun thing to do would be like pick a, a like food related film that was like you know from a various parts of the world and then also like eat that food along with watching the movie. Um, so I did like a whole bunch of research into like, you know, I mean, there's like classics and like things that I already seen like Big Night and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I just started doing some research into like classic kind of like um, food movies and Tampopo came up and so, and we also really love ramen. So I was like, let's, let's fucking do that. Like let's watch Tampopo. Um, so yeah, I, like it was hard to find, like it, it doesn't really, it's not really streaming anywhere. So I had to like buy a copy of it and I was like, I hope this is good. And we ended up watching it and absolutely like loving it. Um, it's just like, it's super fun and super funny. Yeah. It's really, really funny and, um, just like super enjoyed it. And then, yeah, when you were telling me you were doing like the whole international theme, I was like, I'm going to force someone else to watch this so I can watch it. <laughs> No, and um, I love the story. I love the idea. You know, we we had to come up with you know clever things long distance. You know, for a time, and we even came up with our own like you know COVID dates. But I really, I really love the whole idea. I think it's absolutely brilliant because um, food and movies are such a great pairing. You know, um, and so I think that it's a really clever idea. Um, mm -hmm. As for the movie itself, um, I absolutely love it. It is so fun. <laughs> it's so different than anything else that you could watch this year. Um, no, I absolutely adored the hell out of this movie. This movie is fantastic. <laughs> um, and in some ways, like the, the vignettes almost steal from the main plot, you know, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of memorability. Um, I think it's absolutely a blast. Um, Dear, what did you think? I think that this movie is, is fantastic. It's got a lot of like rewatchability 
because like there are definitely vignettes that like even right now that I can't remember and I <laughs> I want to just rewatch it until I can like get yeah. all of them in like my my collective memory bank of what this movie is absolutely loved watching this movie I'm I'm glad that you you went out on a limb with it yeah <laughs> and and I could definitely understand wanting to like have people to talk about this movie with it's such an experience to watch it you know it yeah. is it is truly and you sit down and, and the very first vignette includes this sort of gangster character who's a recurring character in the vignettes and it starts out with a fourth wall break. You know, mm-hmm. like the movie just immediately walks through that door of of establishing itself as being something very, very special that you're about to see just within that first few minutes. It's so sharp. It's so clever. Um, it's right up there with a Woody Allen wall break. You know, like it is just perfect. It's not just a throwaway gag. It's really yeah. quintessential. Um uh, no, I agree. I think there's something uh, very like, I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but like really iconic about that opening scene. And I really think it does set the tone for the whole film as being sort of like um, a little bit like unexpected, like mm-hmm. just the whole course of the film and the way it like branches off into the various vignettes and then comes back and all these like fun little stories that are like so unexpected this is like such this is super corny but it, it, it kind of makes me think I mean the whole movie is about food but it kind of makes me think of like it's like uh there's like the main course you know which is like this this ramen story and then it's like all these fun little sort of like uh, amuse bouches all along the way and they're all like unique and delightful and like fun to watch and sample um and yeah I totally agree with you Lauren like you said kind of earlier like there's such a watchability about it and you just want to go back and like experience all these fun little like offshoot stories like again and again. And um, yeah, they're just like so zany and um, but all like so very like heartwarming and there's something very just like, I don't know, like fun and very human about all of them. Um, And just sort of, yeah, the whole thing, I think again, also kind of subverts expectations with like, um, the fourth wall break with the way, again, all those kind of little vignettes happen, just like the main storyline itself, like, because, um, again, like, he calls it like a, a, a ramen western, and so there's parts of, like, western story arc, again, it's like, but it's still, it's Japanese. So it like has its own kind of like particular tone and take on everything. And there are some like very fun things that I think kind of like subvert your expectations throughout the movie. Um, but that just kind of adds to it and keeps it like super lively and fun and engaging. Yeah. Um, and you know what you were talking about, you know, the main course and then all of these little side tastings, you know, it, that sort of made me think of the, of the little vignette that you get of the, of the old guy you know, talking about like ramen and what makes good ramen and how Mm -hmm. to eat ramen and how, but then you also think about food and how we talk about food, right? And it was, oh, it was the star of the dish, you know, like we even have this kind of weird co-opting of language. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Like a parallel sort of verbiage when you talk about like presenting a meal, like presenting a play or presenting Mm -hmm. a movie. Yeah, it's like, there's various courses and like stages and acts almost throughout a meal. Um, and there is something very sort of like, cause you're right. Even with him talking about how you go about eating the ramen, like 
there's something about food that is like both experiential, but also a little bit like performative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's such like a cool, fun thing to like interplay, like how those two things kind of commingle in the film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, Lauren talks all the time, you know, about some of her experiences from acting and, and when we talk about performances in film and, um, what, what really helps set this movie aside from it, you know, having some certain Japanese, I think, sensibilities is that it has this incredible comedic sensibility as well and all of this heart. And she, she talks all the time about how she had this one um, teacher who was like, you know, what if you loved the person that you're sitting across from? Oh yeah, always choose yes. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And, and like that's- so That's some... more interesting than, than being like, no, I hate them. Yeah. And like on a certain yeah. level, that's, so much of this movie you know like it's not really an angry movie it's not angsty there's not really violence but it is western Mm -hmm. yeah well and even like the violence is like a little bit comedic because like i yeah i think it really like there's like a couple instances so there's like that opening bit and they don't even show like the actual fight they just see like Mm -hmm. the aftermath where he like shows up at the ramen place and that guy is drunk and sort of belligerent and like he's like you got to get out of tampopo's ramen shop like cut the shit he's like all right you want to fucking fight and they're like yeah let's go and then they beat the shit out of him of course um and she like is tending him back to help yeah like i mean you're right aside from that and even that violence like they don't show that violence it doesn't come across as necessarily mean the next time those two guys have like a showdown they end up becoming like good friends it's like uh man man we're gonna take some swings and like work our shit out but it it even also feels like comedic then like it's just like hilarious these two guys like under an overpass just kind of yeah cars just passing by not giving a shit you know literally you're just like so tired they both just like collapse next to each other in the grass and they're just like that's it. We're buddies. Like, let's, well, let's fucking help Tampopo fix up her ramen shop. Um, yeah, he's like, you're such a good guy. Yeah, my buddy over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, um, yeah. No, and, and it was such, uh, it was such a delightful movie, you know, it, it was, it was it was truly enjoyable to watch. You know, I like movies that are that are you know tough to watch, but it was it was so delightful to just sit and watch something that was just like refreshingly bright. You know, like no, it was... yeah, I I completely agree with that. I it also had that you know what I expect from an eighties movie, like not in the sense of like it being like flashy, like colorful, but it was definitely like these absurd storylines and like people just being like yeah we're gonna we're gonna accept yeah. this as my reality and we're gonna mm-hmm. keep going it was like almost like watching like a cartoon in a sense or like like an yeah. anime mm-hmm. in that you know just so light-hearted but like still grounded mm-hmm. yeah no i agree it, it like it feels very much kind of like the world like it feels like grounded kind of like real life but there is definitely like a sort of unique like world with in which that story and like a sort of reality in which that story is being told so yeah there are Mm -hmm. these kind of like pockets of like absurdity like um when that woman's like the one little vignette where it's like the woman's super super sick and her husband comes like running home and like the doctor is like she's not gonna revive and then he's like i know what to do and he tells her to cook uh (laughs) like pulls herself up out and it's like 
even moments like that, like, it's, like, tragic because this woman, like, dies, but, like, it's told in such, like, I don't know, like, a, a hilarious way. I feel like people listening to this who have not seen that movie are going to be like, wow, this woman is laughing because a dying woman got up and cooked her husband a meal. Um, but it really is funny in the context of the film. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's absurdist. It is absurdist, yes. You know, just in, in the most simplest of ways, it's just, it's, it's full tilt absurdist. Yeah, um, I mean, she, like, cooks this last meal for them, and, like, as they're, like, being, like, oh, it's delicious, she just, like, keels over and dies. That's it. Okay, <laughs> done. One last and meal. Then, and then he doesn't tell his children to, like, stop eating. He's, like, you have to finish it. it. That's yeah. the last thing your mother ever made you. And he's, like, right. crying <laughs> over his bowl as he, like, shovels his face. Like, crying? Right. <laughs> uh, and so, like, it's, it's so, it's so fascinating and it's so fun and, and, you know, it is big storytelling, but I think I was doing a little bit of research and of course we watched sort of doom. And one of the reasons that film took a little while to really sort of take off in Japan back when it was introduced in the late 1800s, early 1900s was that people were still really just enjoying the shit out of um, Kabuki theater mm. and Kabuki theater is very overwrought almost melodramatic kind of performance. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the first films that then were done, you know, were, were translations of Kabuki. And so you look at the cinematic tradition of, of Japan and like, they're totally accepting at all levels of like, going back to your point of like, we're gonna commit fully to whatever this concept is. I think that kind of goes back to Kabuki, you know, like you're doing it big, but that's authentic, you know, like that's genuine. And and you look at anime where suddenly our characters' faces completely change, you know, into the huge eyes and the yeah. and the and that kind of thing, you know, in pain or in sorrow or in anger, you know. They're totally fine with it being as big to convey whatever idea or feeling mm -hmm. it is that they're trying to, to to get across. And I think that it really, really lands. Um, it has like a universality of it, you know, like there's, there's no disconnect from, from watching it as a, as an American person yeah. or, you know, watching it as, as a Japanese individual, you know, it, it all reads perfectly, you mm -hmm. know. And like, uh, you even get some of it in sort of doom mm -hmm. where he is, he makes, you know, our main guy makes some really out there faces. And at the end, he has this whole big explosive battle against these ghosts where suddenly it seems like the room's walls have like no limits and lights are going crazy and you can see the scrim, but it doesn't really matter because like we're conveying something right now, you know? And then he starts to just like chop through dudes and you're like, I didn't think this gang was this big, but yeah. it doesn't matter because again, like, we're trying to to sell something right here, right now. Um, yeah. And you get that same thing in Tampopo. And also it was interesting to see how the samurai film of the 60s influenced the spaghetti western sure. that yes. then circled around and made yeah. the, the ramen yeah. western. It's that. this weird... Yeah cyclical nature you know this is what ramen westerns have to offer i'm more interested this is a western for someone that doesn't like a western yeah yeah, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, you, if you looked at me and were like, I hate Westerns, they're so, you know, either John Wayne or, or Clint Eastwood, I would be like, Tam Popo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go and yeah. find it. I mean, honestly, if it wasn't for like the, the like, I'm going to call it the food porn scene, um, <laughs> that, I would say that this is a family movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah. I, yes. No, uh, yeah, the whole like uh, Yukuzu like uh, film, like the, the food porn scenes are. But even those are like, I don't know, there's just something, well, I will say this, like, <laughs> the first time I saw them, like, with the fucking, uh, the shrimps on her stomach, I was like, what in the hell? But um, the thing that I, and I will say this, the thing that I think I like about all of those, even, like, the kind of very sexual, like, food-centric vignettes, um, and all of these vignettes, and I think just, like, the the movie as a whole, like, I think it shows the connectivity of like food and life, like irrespective of who you are and where you are. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, you have like, um, you've got again, like the Yakuza guy and like him and his girlfriend have this like very hot and heavy, like super sexual food kind of like, um, you know, these erotic moments. And then you also have though, like, uh, my my favorite, which is the old woman who squeezes all the produce, um, and it's like some sort of like weird like texture thing almost, where it's like she just really loves going in and just like touching and squeezing and mangling this food in this mm-hmm. grocery store. And then you you have like these classic scenes again, like um, you know people like talking about like the mouthfeel of the noodles and like enjoying ramen, and you have you know like I don't like it's like a whole a swath and array of humanity from like these very wealthy businessmen experiencing like a high-end French, you know, food experience to like the, the whole, like literal, like, you know, the homeless men, uh, in that park sneaking into places and cooking something, you know, as simple as like a, a rice omelet, you know, like, so it's, a whole swath and array of like humanity and life experiences and how so much of that like does revolve around food and who you're eating with and preparing things with people and like what that represents in people's lives. No, absolutely. Food is, food is the, is the silent character in every single Mm -hmm. one of these storylines. It's sexy. It sometimes is disappointing you know, yeah. when, the, when the truck guys yeah. get there, they were really looking forward to a good meal and they stopped earlier than and they wanted to in the name of hunger and yeah. the ramen sucked. Yep. So like food can be sexy. Food can be disappointing. Food can be love, you know, yeah. food can be pride. Food mm-hmm. can be something to fight over. Like food takes on a character in every single one of these scenes. Yeah. And honestly, like, I just, I want to, I want more. Well, let's, let's do, let's do something else now. Let's do one of the other senses. It reminded me of, um, all right, so I'm going to, I'm going to be, I guess, a, a little, like, nerdy for a second. Oh, <laughs> it reminds me of this episode of Adventure Time where they take all of the five senses and they do these, like, little vignettes of each of them that's, like, been tied together by this one character throughout the entire thing at the end he's like all right so did you get the did you get what they were all about and like one is about touch one is about seeing you know one is about hearing and this whole movie just kind of like reminded me of that yeah and I was like there aren't that many things that that do this and I thought this was such an interesting you know I guess yeah. uh, like a topic mm-hmm. to, yeah. to try and like make a whole picture about and I thought that they did a well, great job yeah because you're right it's great like 
the thing that is so wonderful about food is it really is like an all senses kind of experience. I mean, like the common saying is that like you eat first with your eyes, you know, you look at something, you see it, it looks beautiful. It looks delicious. Like you smell it, touch it, you taste it. You can even like, depending on the kind of thing, like I think about fajitas and you hear them like sizzling and crackling and things Mm -hmm. like food is such a sensory experience. I think you're right. They do like such a good job of kind of like discussing and bringing that play into the whole film, but without making it like, like overt and like, over the top or like too trite or like on the nose. You know what yeah, I mean? It's like, not Food Network the movie. No, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, we got a Bobby Flay cameo. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, like the, the subtlety of it, it, um, it, it works so well because you don't really notice it for a time until like, honestly, probably about like halfway through, I was like, all of these vignettes are about food. Yes. You know, like, and you don't really like pay attention to it because you're so engrossed in the in the story, you know, and yeah. all of these people's relationship to what food means. And it's mm-hmm. just it's, yeah. it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, and even like the the main storyline, I mean, the whole reason Tampopo still has that ramen shop is because her her husband had started. He had owned it and he died. And this was like her last big connection to him. Um but she like didn't know what to do with that and how to like move on from it. And it's not until she meets these, you know, men in her life who come and they help her hone her skills. And like, yeah, I mean, you talked earlier about this idea of like food being like pride and stuff like that. She gains pride in like this, not just as a dream of her dead husband, but as like her own dream. And this becomes mm-hmm. about like her own aspirations and her own love of food and her own connection with like Pete, the people in her life. And like, as her, you know, connection with all of these different people grows, her confidence grows, her abilities grow. And so it's really like this whole transformation that, you know, takes this thing where it's just like, again, like this ramen shop that had been someone else's dream and it really becomes her dream and like her passion. And by the end of it, you know, it's transformed her and it's transformed the restaurant. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they they all go through um, their, oh gosh, what is it? Like the the 80s girl transformation where she took off her glasses and she became yes. hot and like the whole thing is like with the with the restaurant it's like they do the beautiful makeover and we have the like glamour shot at the end where it's like look yeah. at it and it's prime it's mm-hmm. perfect <laughs> it'll never be more perfect than this moment now yeah yep. <laughs> no and it's um i really i really I can't speak highly enough about this movie. I think it's so, so, so wonderful and so, so well done. Um, the only like American Western I can think of that's like even half as as funny as this is like Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles, you know? Uh, <laughs> that's like the only, that's the only like American sort of like kindred spirit that I find um, is probably something more in like the comedy Western sort of uh, angle. Mm. Um, I think what's funny about this is I don't feel like it is just like a like I wouldn't consider it like a straight comedy like I think it's no. so joyful and bright and funny but I, I I don't know if I would like necessarily describe it as a straight comedy the same way I would no. describe Blazing Saddles as like a comedy yeah. that just happens to be set in the west <laughs> yeah no but this it's it's a heartfelt film you know it's a heartful film it's um 
you know, it's kind of like chef in that respect, you know, where, yeah. where food does take just as much of a character and, and just as center of a stage and, and is just as delightful, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, is just as lovely of a story. No, yeah, it just leaves you with like warm and fuzzy feelings at the end. Like there are so yeah. few movies that, that truly make you feel like, huh, I've got like this hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. This is such a nice feeling to have. <laughs> I, agree. I think it's like so rare, in my opinion, uh, to find a movie that like is just like both really fun and joyful to watch, but like also really, really well crafted. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like such a like a beautifully told story that's like so. Again, like I really think it's like so uniquely told. Yeah, you know. Um... We talk all the time about like, you know, you were saying that like it's it's fun and it's charming and it's also well crafted. You know, we talk all the time about how, um, you know, people will be like, oh, well, it's for children as though that's some excuse for bad quality, you know. Yeah. Um, and like they talk in, um, you know, in uh, Mexican film history about how like churros ended up killing the film industry. And it's like, well, the problem I don't think was necessarily churros. It was probably that they started making too many bad ones, you know? And so um, it is rare to just have things that are aiming for warmth and heart that that land with all of the real technical prowess that's definitely on display. Like this is a well-crafted, well-crafted yeah. film. No, yeah, we don't have to lower the the quality of the art. We can still love the thing that we're producing. It doesn't, but it doesn't have to be, you know, the biggest budget thing mm-hmm. yeah you know we can have yeah. filler movies that still make you go i liked watching this and i'd watch it again mm-hmm. yeah that well, are also and, well done yeah yeah well and another thing i was thinking about too um and you brought this up earlier you know kind of seeing a like i think the other thing that's fun about it is seeing how you know to your point um samurai like japanese samurai kind of cinema heavily influenced what became the spaghetti western and then seeing that kind of like turn back and that mm-hmm. sort of like feedback loop and when you're watching tampopo like again you you get these hints of very sort of like american like western style film that show up um or just kind of like american star- style film in general like the kind of like gangster film you know again yeah. those sort of like yakuza vignettes or then like uh the one where they are with like the homeless men and he sneaks in with the little boy it's, it feels very like three stooges very like chaplain-esque yeah. you know what i'm saying where he kind of like they sneak in one door and you know and do all the fun out the and then they mm-hmm. out right as the other guy comes in and they like loop around you know like it's just it's it's really cool and interesting to see that kind of um cultural exchange and like that feedback loop and i think that's another thing that is like really kind of intriguing about this movie in particular is like seeing that sort of dialogue happen very like viscerally on the screen yeah and you know this was this was also uh you know 40 some odd years after world war ii and you know in the post-war uh era you did have this we were talking about this kind of like before world war ii germany and uh the u.s had this exchange back and forth of film and you know then in in sort of post-war japan you had this similar thing this this constant back and forth you know because we went in and we kind of you know westernized the whole thing and helped them set up a constitution and so forth and and so then there was this exchange back and forth um of technology of culture of film Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting to see as you know the samurai film comes into the 60s at the same time that john wayne is happening in america 
you know, then the 70s go through that transformation, like you said. And it's interesting. And it's all based in this kind of history that happened 40 odd years ago, because mm -hmm. before that film was definitely growing on its own trajectory, but it was a separate you know, cinematic paradigm that was yeah. going to evolve out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Had World War II not happened and had there not been the exchange back and forth for, you know, the 40 years leading up to this. No, yeah, mm -hmm. you were talking about, um, you know, these parallels that we have to like, to our culture and, and to the things that we have put out there. I was just thinking about like the businessmen scene where it's like, yeah. mm, yes, they walk in like, yes, we're gonna do business. I have a business luncheon. And mm -hmm. I loved that scene. It was absolutely hilarious. I loved him being like, yes. And you know, oh, the caviar and this and mm -hmm. that. And I was like, I felt exactly the opposite. I was like, man, I don't know what to order at a French yeah. restaurant. And I would probably done the exact same as the rest of the businessmen who are like, yes, we know what we're doing. We'll order the Heineken, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Love that scene, so yes. good. Such a, such a good payoff for, um, and that's what, something that like, I feel like, you know, one acts and like these little vignettes do so well. It's like have a whole complete story in like a few minutes. Yeah. I, I knew exactly, like, I, I was with him the entire time. I was like, you know, fuck those guys. Yeah. Know? And then he, he turned it around, and I was like, yeah, at the end, like, you're, it's so good. <laughs> Buster Scruggs. Yeah. That's another Western yeah, yeah, yeah. that this reminds me of. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So perfect. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, I think you're totally right, like, because the other thing that is really cool is, like, none of the vignettes feel, like, unfinished or, like, weirdly out of place. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. They all, like, no matter how short, feel like such, like, a fully fleshed out, complete story with, like, fully realized characters. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if it's, like, literally, like, a two-minute vignette. Like, they all felt, like, fully complete, which I honestly think had to have been, like, a really hard thing to write yeah. and craft and do so well. But, like, I never feel like any of them feel like, th like, throwaway moments at all. No, not at all. It's incredibly seamless, it's incredibly well-structured, and it's kind of like if you were to lay it out on cards, it's kind of, you know, scene by scene, you'd have the most cards for the Tampopo story, mm -hmm. and then you would have, like, three cards or four cards for the Yakuza story, mm -hmm. and then you would go and you would have, like, one card for everything after that, mm -hmm, yeah. pretty much. Uh, and it's absolutely seamless how they then take all of these like very disparate things when you lay them out yeah, on paper. Honestly, the transitions are great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They just sort of pass off character perspective yeah. in, a, in a moment yeah. and they use the camera to do it, you know? Was, it's Yes, yes, yes. One of my favorite ones is like, I think it's like that first m major one after the opening where, yeah, it's like, you're following her while she's doing this sort of like eye of the tiger, you know, style training for the ramen shop. And then it, like those businessmen walk by and then all of a sudden and they just, transitions and you're following them. And like that, it was so mm -hmm. seamless and like so well done. You're just like, Oh, I guess we're like, it felt like you were like walking around with these people. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I guess we're, we're just going to follow this little tale yeah. real quick. And then you loop back around and it's like, even, yes, even just, those choices. I was like, this is so good. <laughs> I think sometimes people forget that like you can creatively use camera and editing and it and and if you use it the right way, it'll be seamless because the camera is informing you. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. like what you're seeing and what you're hearing is informing you. 
You don't have to explain it all no. of the time to death. You can let the visual language play it out. Yes. No, no, I think it's a lot of like, show me, don't tell me. Yes. Yes. I was going to say, and I think sometimes like people forget that like you, you can play with perspective in like a very real way um you know and i it makes me think of something you know kind of like this idea of like um like rear window movies like that i think play very specifically like with perspective and yeah i think a lot of times people forget that like you can use that camera to yeah you don't have to explain like we're going to a different scene we're doing like a, a scene change a shift like literally he just uses the camera to switch who he's following and that is the perspective change and that's it and it's like you can use the camera to your advantage like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I didn't need to have some like cue card pop up. No words came on the screen. To didn't need me. a title for it. Nope, it just happened. And, and you, you literally accept it. And mm -hmm. I think that's yeah. the thing that people forget about watching um, about watching film is like, we're, we're so like, oh, we, it has to be a certain way. Whereas like, I think that with theater, because the medium is live and in your face, you you have a little bit more of this like I'll yeah. accept your gray area more, and I think that we should bring that back. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it's so simple and I so think you're, effective. You're right. You know, like on stage, like because it's not like you don't do any editing. Like there are on scene very visual transitions. But it creates this kind of like interesting perspective space, this sort of like nebulous space of transition. And like, I agree, I think you can bring that to film. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I honestly can't recommend this movie enough. Um, and I really also can't thank you enough for, for bringing it to my attention. It's easily one of the best things that I watched this year. No, yeah, honestly. Really it's so fucking good. And like, oh. I, I don't know like anyone who's seen it. So I was like, I need to talk to someone about this. <laughs> We're going to so start the, the Tampopo fan club. No, <laughs> uh, welcome to the first okay. international meeting of the Tampopo fan club. Hello, everyone. Yes. <laughs> Perfect movie. No, no. And it's like, yeah. I really do feel like it's it's a must. You gotta like the whole time we were watching it. I was like, I wish we had ramen. Like you gotta you gotta yeah. just eat, eat ramen while you watch the fucking movie. Like you just yeah. gotta do it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so Matt, if you had to if you had to rate it out of five. Oh, got five out of five for me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I fucking Same. love that movie. It's five, great. five as well. Five out of five. Done. We did it. Perfect score. Yeah, so great. It's so good. <laughs> no, it's it's shocking. It, I, you know, I knew that it was going to be good. I knew I would, would probably enjoy it. I had no other really like expectations. You know, I heard the plot. It was like, you know, Western about someone who, who helps a woman, you know, set up a ramen shop, little scenes in between. I was like, okay, I don't know what that amounts to, but okay. You know, yeah. and, and this completely exceeded any expectation that I could have set. No, on the film yeah, honestly like, there's there's nothing that i don't like about this movie and i think that that's such a rare gift yeah I, I agree you went like you didn't go ugh, really yeah this isn't, <laughs> this isn't this isn't a five where i look at it and go well maybe there are still some faults in it but i think that overall its strengths carry it over no this movie is just it's on <laughs> no all good. cylinders five no out of five good. on all everything no it was like a visual roller coaster ride. I just enjoyed the, the, my time with Tam Popo. <laughs> Perfect dish. Yes. <laughs> it was 
Michelin star winning. That's right. Um, <laughs> but no, uh, I absolutely loved it. I loved talking about it. Um, thank you for, for coming on. Is there anything that you would like to, to let the listeners know? Do you have any, anything in the works? You know, I have anything in the works, something that they could maybe go and read of yours soon or currently. I mean, currently, yes. Uh, my, uh, taking an accurate sexual history was, is still up. Uh, actually just won, um, best of the net for that recently. Hey, nice. On- Prometheus Dreaming. So if you want to go read a really short, short story, uh, go for that. Um, as far as like my own stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm still working on like a novel tentatively, but that's like, no one should read that, right? No one needs to see it where it's at right now. No one should know. I'm just going to be quietly aware that this stage of the story existed and then take that to my grave. No one should read where it's at right now, but <laughs> eventually someday, hopefully, soon uh working on that um yeah i mean that's i don't i have nothing exciting happening except for the fact that i'm gonna eat a bunch of food tomorrow <laughs> so yeah. i've got going well, my life. i think that's good enough um I'll, I'll link to um i'll link to it below um and and all of madeline's socials as well so that way you can go and and follow uh follow mad the impaler um yeah you can so, see all my photos of my cat. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. Um, the dear, content do have, that you want. Do you have anything that you would like to, to tell the listeners before we go? Um, watch Tim Popo. Yes. <laughs> do <Okay>. it. <laughs> it's a must. It really is. No, for sure. Um, honestly, I think, I think that it is fitting that our, our episode that's going to come out after Thanksgiving is, is partially food centric and, and I'm certainly thankful that I'm going to be having a a warm meal and I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, this time that I've had with the listeners, you know, I'm going to continue on obviously into December, but it's been a great time and I want to thank you all for, for coming in and, and listening. It means a lot these last, you know, two months. Um, I haven't wanted to do wrong by Henry, and I'm very thankful to Henry for giving me this opportunity. Um, and so thank y'all. And thank everyone who's, who's come on as a guest. Thank you. Thank you for being my co-host. Uh, thank you to Nick, Sky, Clark, uh, everyone who's really made this a, a wonderful time. Wow, that just was- had a show. Show everyone the fuck up. We're, we're all <laughs> like, we don't have anything going on, and you're like, I just want to be thankful for all of you. <laughs> and I, was, I was over here being like, cool. man, that was so beautiful, and I like yeah. to think of like, thanks for tuning in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like, woo! <laughs> Reviewers like you. Thanks. That's right. <laughs> But yeah, you know, I guess also though, ironically, it's also International Month, and all of our international listeners are like, I don't fucking celebrate. Celebrate <laughs> Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So. That's I guess I'm I, I'm thankful for uh, yeah I guess I'm thankful for y'all. You're my family. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Blah blah. <laughs> it's been great. I love it. I love you, kid. Thankful <laughs> for you. Honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better sister-in-law. Aww. Okay. The people can't see it, but we're sending hand hearts to each other, and it's beautiful, mm. and you're missing it. <laughs> because this is a podcast. Exactly. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so thanks everyone for listening and um, thank you guys for coming on and we'll have a whole new theme going next month. Uh, my sort of strange anti-holiday holiday movie fest that I'm going to do. Yeah. Uh, currently, I think it's going to include The Green Knight. It's also going to have Eight Crazy Nights. Um, so I'll come up with some other ones to throw in there and uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.